Hi friends, my name is Kristen and this is Again, the podcast where we explore case studies for reincarnation. Welcome to the third episode of Again. Every episode feels like a really big deal to me. Like, it's still kind of a surprise when I actually have a finished episode ready to be published. It's crazy. So just a heads up, I was listening to the audio for the actual recording for today's episode and the audio is not super cute if we're being honest. I had kind of a wonky setup for this one and I actually had to hold the microphone while I was talking into it and it's just not that kind of microphone. I promise the audio will get better in future episodes. So I hope it's fine for today, but I just wanted to give a little heads up. Also, I'm releasing this episode a little early this week on a Wednesday instead of Friday. So you get this week's episode a little early, but I'm just experimenting with it with the release day, seeing what works best. But I do think I'll probably stick with Fridays and next week the episode will be out as normal on Friday. But let me know too if you have a, a, an opinion, a preference one way or the other. Today's case is a really cool one. I had a great time reading it and putting together the notes for it, and I hope you guys love it too. So let's get into it. So this one comes from the book Children's Past Lives by Carol Bowman. We talked about her a little bit in last week's episode. She was the person that Patrick's mom had reached out to for guidance when he started speaking so much about his past life as Kevin. This this case is the very first one in the book, Children's Past Lives, and Chase and Sarah are Carol's children. This case mostly focuses on Chase, as you'll see, because Sarah's experience happens all at once, while Chase's experience is kind of divided up over a couple of years. But I didn't want to leave Sarah's experience out because even though it's more brief, it's still very meaningful. So this case starts on July 4th, 1988. The family, so Carol and her husband Steve, always hosted a big 4th of July backyard party, which would end with everyone walking to the municipal golf course down the hill from their home. And this was to watch the biggest and best fireworks show in Asheville, which is where they lived. So at this time, Sarah's nine and Chase is five. And Chase had been talking for weeks leading up to this about how he was looking forward to it and how much he enjoyed the parties every year and especially how excited he was for the fireworks show. Chase was a very energetic kid, always running around, not scared of anything. And people would joke that Carol and Steve had gotten what they asked for when they named him Chase. So 4th of July comes around and everyone's having a great time. Sarah and her friends kind of set up to the side of the party, decorating their table with flowers and running back and forth to her room to try on different dress up clothes and hats and jewelry. While Chase and the younger kids kind of just run around all over and play all day. Finally, the sun sets and it was time to walk over to the golf course to get a good spot to watch the show. So they grab some blankets, flashlights, and head off. They get there, find their favorite spot, laid the blankets down, and settled in. 
Sarah and her friends lit sparklers while Chase was all, you know, pumped up from the excitement and the sugar. And he just ran up and down the hills with his friends until he kind of tuckered out and passed out on his mom's lap. And they just kind of watched all of the people around them until the show started. And then eventually the loud kind of booming cannon noises went off announcing the start of the show. And people in the crowd were ooing and aahing as the sky was lit up with the fireworks and being able to hear all of the noises only added to the excitement of the show and being there. But Chase, instead of being, you know, bedazzled by the show, he started to cry. Carol asked him what was wrong, but he couldn't even answer. He just only started to cry even louder. So Carol snuggled him close to her, thinking that maybe he was just tired and the loud noise must have startled him. But his crying only got deeper and more hysterical. After a few minutes of it only getting worse and worse, Carol knew that she would have to take him home away from all the stimulation. So she told her husband, Steve, she was taking Chase home and he needed to stay and watch Sarah and her friends until the show was over. Chase was crying so deeply he couldn't even walk home. Carol had to carry him back up the hill to their home. And even when they got back, he was still sobbing. So she sat on the rocking chair with him, just holding him and waiting. And when his crying eased up enough for her to be able to even ask him if he was hurt or sick or something, he would only whimper and shake his head no. When Carol asked if the loud noises had scared him, he only started sobbing even harder. So she just kept holding him and rocking him, and eventually he fell asleep, and she was able to put him to bed. Now, Carol was baffled by this behavior. Chase had never cried for so long or so deeply in his life, and he had definitely never been afraid of fireworks before. And the whole thing seemed super out of character for this child. He wasn't easily afraid of anything, really. So Carol rationalized that he must have been frazzled from the long day. Maybe he'd had too many treats or just something had set him off. You know, things like this happen with kids, right? was kind of her thinking. However, a month later, it happened again. So a friend had invited the family over to the town's indoor swimming pool. And Chase loves the water. He was eager to jump in the pool. But as soon as they were inside, where the sound of the diving board started booming off of the walls and all of the yellow yelling echoed in the big building, he began to cry again, really hysterically crying. He was howling and screaming, and he grabbed Carol's arm with both hands and pulled her to the door and they found a chair in the shade outside and Carol asked him what was bothering him but Chase couldn't tell her he was very clearly deeply upset even terrified of something but even after he calmed down and stopped crying he absolutely refused to go back inside the pool building so as they sat outside Carol started to reflect back to the first episode of something like this happening the previous month during the fireworks. And she realized that the sounds of the diving board reverberating off of the walls of the pool building sounded the same as the fireworks. So she asked Chase if he was frightened by the sounds. And he just kind of 
sheepishly nodded yes, but still absolutely refused to go back inside the pool building. So Carol was racking her brain trying to figure out why Chase suddenly had such an intense, overwhelming fear of loud noises, but she couldn't think of anything that had happened that would cause such a severe reaction to the sounds. And this being the second time it had happened in a month now, seemingly out of nowhere, you know, she was worried. She was worried that it could turn into a real problem, especially if she wasn't there the next time that it happened. But she didn't know what to do. So she waited and hoped that he would outgrow the fear. A few weeks later, Carol, Chase, and Sarah were sitting at their kitchen table having tea and cookies with a man named Norman Inge. Um, he was a skilled hypnotherapist and was staying at their house while he was in town conducting some workshops. I, I think the last name is pronounced Inge, spelled I-N-G-E. Inge? I think so. Um... He had done some private sessions with some of Carol's friends and with Carol. And while they're sitting, having tea and just talking, something reminded Carol of Chase's fear of loud noises. And she asked Norman about it. So he listened to the story and then he asked Chase if he'd like to try an experiment. Carol didn't know exactly what Norman was planning, but she did trust him and knew that he would be sensitive to her young son. Chase was just as eager as Carol was to get to the bottom of the thing, so they both agreed to try. So, this was a turning point for Carol. Up until that moment, she didn't think that children could remember past lives. So, this was a, this was a really crucial moment. So, Norman has Chase sit on his mother's lap, and he tells Chase to close his eyes and tell him what he sees when he hears the loud noises that scare him. And Chase immediately begins describing himself as an adult soldier carrying a gun. And he says, I'm standing behind a rock. I'm carrying a long gun with a kind of sword at the end. Norman then asks Chase what he's wearing. And Chase says, I have dirty ripped clothes, brown boots, a belt. I'm hiding behind a rock, crouching on my knees and shooting at the enemy. I'm at the edge of a valley. The battle is going on all around me. I don't want to look, but I have to when I shoot. Smoke and flashes everywhere. And loud noises, yelling, screaming, loud booms. I'm not sure who I'm shooting at. There's so much smoke, so much going on. I'm scared. I shoot at anything that moves. I really don't want to be here and shoot at other people. So while Chase is describing all of this, Carol is sitting listening in absolute amazement because Chase had never been interested in war toys and never even owned a toy gun. He always preferred games and construction toys. He would happily rather play for hours at a time with blocks, Legos, wooden trains. And his TV viewing was strictly limited to Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street. You know, he was five. And none of the Disney movies he had seen had depicted war of any kind. And while he was speaking and describing all of this, his tone was serious and mature, which was highly uncharacteristic of 
his happy little five-year-old self. He truly seemed to be feeling this soldier's feeling and thinking his thoughts. He didn't want to be there shooting at other men. Chase wasn't telling, you know, some glorified story of war or soldiering. He was describing a man in the heat of battle who was terrified and didn't want to be there. His little body was also showing how deep this experience was for him. As he was describing it, Carol said that she could feel his whole body tense. And when he stated that he didn't want to be there, his breathing quickened and he curled up as if he were trying to hide. Now, Norman could see his distress as he was reliving this experience of being a soldier who had to shoot other people in order to survive. So slowly he said to Chase, We live many different lives on earth. We take turns playing different parts like actors in a play. We learn what it means to be a human by playing these different parts. Sometimes we're soldiers and kill others in a battle, and sometimes we are killed. We are simply playing our parts to learn. As Chase listened to Norman reassuring him, Carol could feel his body relaxing and his breathing becoming more regular. The anguished look on his little face melted away, and once Norman saw that Chase had calmed down, he asked Chase to continue telling them what he was saying. And Chase said, I'm crouching on my knees behind the rock. I'm hit in the right wrist by a bullet someone shot from above the valley. I slide down behind the rock, holding my wrist where I was shot. It's bleeding. I feel dizzy. Someone I know drags me out of the battle and takes me to a place where they took soldiers that are hurt. Not like a regular hospital, just big poles, like an open tent, covered with material. There are beds there, but they're like wooden benches. They're very hard and uncomfortable. Chase continues to say that he felt dizzy and he could hear the sounds of the battle around him as his wrist was bandaged and that he was relieved to be out of the battle. But it was only for a little bit before he was ordered back and reluctantly returned to the shooting. He says, I'm walking back to the battle. There are chickens on the road. I see a wagon pulling a cannon on it. The cannon is tied onto the wagon with ropes. The wagon has big wheels. Chase then goes on to say that he had been ordered to man a cannon on a hill overlooking the main battlefield. He was visibly upset by this order and repeats that he didn't want to be there and he said that he missed his family. Chase mentioning that he missed his family caused Carol and Norman to glance at each other with raised eyebrows but before they could find out more Chase started fidgeting and said that the images were fading. He opened his eyes and looked around for a moment and smiled. Norman asked how he felt and he said fine and hopped off Carol's lap, grabbed another cookie, and ran off to the other room to play. Meanwhile, Norman, Carol, and Sarah are are left sitting in the kitchen table, completely blown away by what they had just heard. They talked about what just happened, and Norman was sure that Chase had indeed remembered a past life. He explained that a traumatic experience in a past life, especially a traumatic death, can cause phobia in the present life. And was this the cause of Chase's extreme fear of the loud noises? Norman explained that they would have to wait and see if the fear went away. 
Now, this whole time, Sarah had been kind of sitting there taking it all in. And suddenly she bounced in the chair and waved her arms and she pointed at the spot on Chase's wrist where he had been shot and pointed out that that was where his eczema is. The location of the wound Chase had told them about was exactly the location of a rash that he had suffered with since he was a baby. Whenever he became upset or very tired, he would scratch at that spot on his wrist until it bled. Carol had even often had to bandage the wrist in order to keep him from scratching and further bleeding. And she had taken him to several doctors because of how bad it was, but allergy tests, a food elimination test, uh, or sorry, a food elimination diet, and ointments had done nothing to clear it up. However, within a few days of his regression, the eczema had vanished completely and never returned, as well as his fear of loud noises, fireworks, loud booming sounds never scared him again. And in fact, shortly after the regression, Chase became interested in playing the drums. So for his sixth birthday, he got his first drum set and went on to become a serious drummer, ironically filling the house with loud booming noises all the time. So going back again to Sarah, once the three of them Norman, Carol, and Sarah had finished discussing and processing what had just happened with Chase. Sarah asked Norman if he could try an experiment with her as well, and she explained that she had been struggling with her own horrible fear of house fires. It was extreme and inexplicable. While she admitted that now that the fire, the idea of fire, had terrified her for as long as she could remember, Carol explains that she and her husband, Steve, had actually become aware of it only a year before when Sarah had spent the night down the street with a close friend. And the girls stayed up late watching a movie on TV that had scenes of burning houses and buildings. And Sarah was so absolutely distraught at these images that her friend's mother had to bring her home in the middle of the night. Nothing like that had ever happened before, and Sarah had stayed the night at that house many times before. When she had gotten home that night, her eyes were already red from crying so much, and she continued to sob as she explained that someone in the movie had been killed in the fire. And Carol and Steve were surprised by this, and even more surprised when Sarah told them that she actually kept a packed bag under her bed with her favorite toys and some clothes ready to make a quick escape if she ever needed to. This, again, was completely out of character for Sarah. She was a very self-assured and independent little girl. And although that night she was eventually able to fall asleep, she was upset for days after this event and even reviewed escape routes from every room in the house. And despite all of that, her fears had become even more pronounced. She would become upset if the family lit candles on the dining table, insisting that they be blown out, and not believing her parents when they promised to protect her if the house ever did catch on fire. So now back to the kitchen with Norman. He told Sarah to close her eyes, feel the fear of the fire, and tell him what she sees. Sarah began to describe a simple two-story wooden house 
shaped like a barn, surrounded by woods and farmland. She saw a wagon road overgrown with grass, which passed in front of the house. And she saw herself as a girl about 11 or 12 years old, which again is a few years older than she was at the time of this taking place. She stated that she spent most of her time working at the house, helping her mother and sometimes her father with the animals. She explained that she didn't go to school because they didn't believe girls needed education. She saw a younger brother who couldn't help much with the work and that she mentioned that he may have been disabled in some way. Norman then suggested that Sarah move ahead to the time when her fear of the fire started. Up until that, she had been really objective in her speech, like an observer, like someone just watching and reporting. But as she began to describe the fire, she became completely absorbed in her terror. She said, I wake up suddenly and smell smoke. I know the house is on fire. I'm scared, panicked. I can't think. I jump out of bed, flames and smoke everywhere. I run across the hall looking for my parents. Big flames cover the stairs and banister. Small flames shoot up through the cracks in the floor. The bottom of my nightgown is on fire. I'm running into my parents' room. They're not here. Their beds are made. Where are they? I keep running until I'm trapped in the far corner of the room. I'm shaking as I stand in the corner. Why don't they save me? Why don't they get me out? A beam covered with big flames falls down in front of me and breaks a hole in the floor. Fire is everywhere. There's no way out. It really hurts to breathe. I know I'm going to die. Sarah sat silently for several moments with her head in her hands before her breathing began to slow and her face relaxed and a sense of calm returned to the room they were in. Norman then asked, what are you experiencing now? And Sarah explained, I feel myself floating high above the treetops. I feel light like air. I guess I'm dead. I don't feel any pain. I'm relieved that it's over. That was awful. Norman then asks if she could see her family. And Sarah explained that she could see her house totally covered in flames and that the roof was gone. Her brother is sitting on the ground and her father is holding on to her mother who is crying and waving her arms at the house. And as she described it, Sarah began to cry really deeply as well. She went on to say that they had tried to save her but couldn't get past the heat and the flames and that they were devastated they couldn't save her. But she was greatly relieved just to know the truth that they had tried. She admitted that she had carried the weight of thinking that her parents hadn't tried to save her into this lifetime. Once she stopped crying and returned, you know, fully to the present moment, she explained more about her final moments in that lifetime and how they had been filled with anger for her parents, thinking that they didn't love her because they hadn't gotten her out of the burning house. She then explained that her current fear of fire was a reminder that she still had something unfinished from that life to lifetime to deal with. And I mean, she was nine when she's saying all of these things and making these connections. It's pretty remarkable. And even a few days after this, Sarah actually unpacked the bag that she had kept under her bed with her dolls 
and clothes, and her fear of fire had completely disappeared, even though now she's very safe with fire, always careful when she lights a match. So fast forward about a year. Carol's husband had accepted a new job and the family moved from Asheville to suburban Philadelphia. The children got settled into their new school and their home. And a few months after all of that, Chase and Carol were sitting having breakfast together when Chase asked her if she remembered that time when he saw that he was a soldier. Carol was surprised to hear him bringing it up after it had been so long and she got goosebumps. Chase went on to share that in that lifetime he was black and that black and white soldiers fought together. Carol asked him what else he saw, but Chase just said that was it and he went back to his cereal. Carol was curious what had sparked this information to come to the surface, but she didn't have much to go on and Chase wasn't offering much else. A few months later, in February 1991, the media was covering extensively the conflict in Iraq, and one day Chase was getting into the car after school and he declared, they'll never make me fight again. Carol asked him what he meant, and he said that he wanted to do another session like he did with Norman the time when he was a soldier. And he said that there was more coming up because the kids in school kept talking about the war on TV. And he kept thinking about what he saw with Norman. And at this point, it had been two years since Chase had last mentioned his lifetime as a soldier. And during that time, Carol had trained in hypnotherapy and studied past life regression techniques with Norman and Dr. Roger uh, Wooliger. She felt confident that she could handle anything that came up during the session, so she waited for a quiet moment in the afternoon, made Chase comfortable, and began. She told Chase to go back to the scene he had saw with Norman when he was a soldier. And Chase says, There's a battle going on. Smoke everywhere. I'm not shooting. I'm waiting. I start to shoot at the enemy. I don't have any choice. I want to protect myself. The people on the horses are white. I'm black. White soldiers are on my side. There's too much going on. Confusion everywhere. I'm scared half to death. He gets my wrist with a shot. It hardly hurts. Everything goes black. Carol let him experience what he was seeing as he took a pause in describing the scene. Eventually, he, eventually she asks him to continue describing and... He talks about being ordered to return to the battle and how he was pulling a string to shoot a cannon from the top of the valley since he couldn't shoot a gun now because of his wrist. He describes how scared he is shooting the cannon and how he knows how the others feel to be shot at and that they're scared too. Eventually, Carol suggests that he go back further into that lifetime before the battle. Chase says... I'm at a house. It's mine. Sort of a cabin made of rough wood. The house has a front porch with a railing, a place to hitch horses. There's a rocking chair on the porch and a door in the middle. I have two kids. I think I have a wife. I do. I'm happy. It's before the war. I was where the blacks are free. I see my wife. I see her from behind. She's in the house. She's wearing a blue dress with a white apron. She wears a dress with petticoats and black boots. 
She has straight hair she wears pulled back in a rag. I see a black man on the porch smoking a pipe. It's me. I'm not young, about 30 or something. And I, just a side note, I'm 30, so pff, rude. But he goes on to say, mm, I'm about 30 or something. I'm very happy in, t- in the town. I wasn't born there, but I was brought there as a baby in a covered wagon. I'm a painter and a carpenter, and I make pots and sell them and make models out of wood for a hobby. There's a green area behind my my house with bushes around. That's my favorite place. That's where I make my pots. There's a dirt road in front of my house that goes to town. My town is a friendly town with wagons and farms. Chickens walk free. There are other black people who get along pretty well. The name of our town is something like Colosso. It's 1860-something at the beginning of the war. People are standing around a post where the roads meet. It's the center of town. There's a lot of excitement. They're talking about the war. I'm reading a notice attached to the post. The notice says, war and has little print. I'm not sure that I can read, but I know the notice is asking for volunteers. I get excited, too, and I volunteer. I sign a paper. I don't know what the paper says. I can't read. I'm leaving my family. This is a sad time for me and my family, especially my kids. They're crying. I'm very sad. This is the saddest time of my life. continues to describe leaving, and eventually he ends up back at the battlefield describing being behind the cannon before he says, I'm hit. I'm floating above the battlefield. I feel good that I'm done. I see the battle and the smoke below. As I look down on the battlefield... Everything is still and smoky. Nothing is moving down there. I feel happy that I'm done. I get to go to a happier life. I flow over my house. I see my wife and kids. I say goodbye to my family. They don't see me because I'm in spirit, but they know that I'm dead. And Chase then stopped speaking for a moment and just looked very peaceful. Carol then asked him what he had learned from this lifetime, and Chase says, Everyone has to be in a war. It balances everything out. Not necessarily die in a war, but experience it. It teaches you about feelings. It gives you a sense of how other people feel. It's a bad place. I skipped World War II. I was up. I was waiting for my turn to go back to a more peaceful time. I had a short life in between. Eventually, Carol and Chase concluded the session, and within minutes, Chase was back to playing with his Legos. In the days afterwards, Chase was relaxed and confident, and the news no longer bothered him. It's also important to note in this instance that, in this case, that many of the random details that he included are valid and and accurate, such as the chickens roaming around free, the enlistment papers that he couldn't read, even the string for firing the cannons, that's accurate. So I'm really curious to hear what you guys thought about this case and um, if you thought it was interesting, what you liked about it. This was a really fun case for me to read about and prepare, just reading it in the book, again, Children's Past Lives by Carol Bowman. It was was really good. I definitely recommend picking it up and giving it a read. But it was also an important case because it was kind of what sparked Carol Bowman's work. And she's done a lot of really important 
work and and therapy and research in this field. So it's really good. And I really enjoyed this one. I hope you did too. Definitely let me know again what you thought of it. And let me know if there are any cases that you would like to hear about in the future. Tell me any of your own stories with past life memories. Again, podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you feel so inclined, please leave a five-star review and subscribe for new episodes every single Friday. You can also follow along on Instagram at againpodcast. Send an email to againpodcast at gmail.com. And I hope you have an amazing week and I will see you again in the next one.